after 20-something years of marriage. I didn't even attempt to remember the exact number so as to not get myself in trouble. But rest assured, I know it. I like this, guys. Although this handheld mic kind of brings out Pentecostal arty. So this reminds me of the old days. Uh, I think the only discouraging thing that's happened to me today is the ending of that worship service. Uh, thank you guys for coming up here and preparing to do that for us. We really appreciate it. Feels so good. I'm going to be honest with you, which I always like when people start that way because I'm thinking, so does that mean all the times you didn't preface it with, I'm going to be honest with you, that you were in fact being dishonest with me? Uh, so this, I, I've been waiting for a long time for a, a, a time when it would be appropriate uh, to kind of do a, 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 a prolonged exposition of Micah 6.8 and kind of dig right down into the heart of it and, and talk about what it means and the implications for the new covenant community of the people of God because it is an old covenant uh, promise that's, or, or command that's given and, and how does that relate to us today and so forth. And so obviously I kind of thought, well, there's like these three power phrases. That'll be a three-week sermon series. And so we just kind of talked about it of when we might do that because Micah 6.8 has actually been a, quite a driving force in my life personally, and it actually has been an inspiration for us as leadership in terms of understanding and articulating even our own mission. I'll even bring that out a little bit more. And, and so I wanted to do this ahead of time, but now I'm up here and I'm looking around and, you know, it's Pentecostal already this morning, so there's going to be some spontaneous interruptions. But I just have to say, uh, I want to make sure that you all know that Melanie Elliott and Glenn Burns are both with us here this morning. It just does my heart good to see both of you here. And so, uh, and so it's, uh, we're really grateful that the Lord has been faithful in the preservation of their health as they've been facing some challenges. So it's good to have you all here. So anyway, back to Micah 6.8. So Micah 6.8, uh, so we'll, we'll, I was thinking at some point we'll do a three-week week time on it. And so between Advent and how to pray, there ended up being three weeks. So we were like, yes, this, we had a team meeting. We were talking, we were praying and thinking through what we might do. And, and this came up and this was like, yes. And I felt really good about it because I've read commentaries and we've talked about Micah 6.8 for years, but I was unprepared for just how vast this topic is. And so what I'm gonna do this morning is my best attempt to be concise with an overview of this topic. Now, that was before I knew I was going to be Pentecostal already this morning, so who knows how it's going to go. But I do want to say a few things from the beginning because I don't want it to be misunderstood. Here's the thing about the Bible. If you want to justify any of your ideological agenda and you are conservative, you are going to find plenty of verses to support your preferences and or even your prejudices. If you are a liberal progressive and you are wanting to go to the Bible to justify all of your convictions and prejudices according to your particular ideology, you're going to find plenty of verses that will support that ideology. The problem is, if either of you keep reading, you're always going to find some stuff that's going to make you really mad. Because the Bible is not intended to buttress modern, economic, governmental, psychological, philosophical ideologies. That's not why it was written. In fact, most of it's there before these disciplined ever really developed and became the sophisticated realities that govern our life this day. So... As you listen to this, what I want you to do, my, my prayer is over the next three weeks that you will have an expanded revelation of the heart of God and therefore be informed about the expanded understanding of your role in the mission of God. But as we do, we cannot talk about this verse and these topics without talking about and wrestling with both the private implications as well as the public implications, how it might inform the way we organize our community. And I will say from the very beginning, I understand that reading through these concepts and having this discussion, it does have implications for the development of your convictions about society and politics and economics. It does. 
But I want to make sure it's clear in case I make a misstep over the next three weeks. My goal is not in any way political. My goal is not in any way to tip my hat to some particular economic ideology. Even though those themes are going to be there, if, 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 if that's what you feel that I'm trying to do is push some particular political or economic agenda um, directly, uh, then I ask that you give me a chance to talk. Somebody gave me a gift certificate to McAllister's, which is one of my favorite Reuben locations. And uh, so you don't have to pay for my sandwich. I'm not going to pay for yours, but you don't have to pay for mine. Uh, and we can talk about it because it really, because it's a tension. It's a balancing act here because it will inform your personal convictions about these other areas, but that's not what I'm doing. I am talking about what can this passage teach us about the heart of God, the mission of God, and therefore the mission of the community of God. And that's where I want to focus my attention because we're going to be using words that depending on which news network you like to watch, you're going to allow that news network to define the words that I'm using. Please do not do that. I can nearly guarantee and promise you that I am not going to be using any of these familiar terms in the same way the news anchor is using these terms, whichever network it is that you get your preferred news from. And the reason why I'm saying all of this is that I realize this is so much a part of the heart of God and the heart of our faith that I am filled with anticipation personally for the next season of my life as I open myself up to it and press into it more. I've told you before, the study of Luke made a profound and lasting transformation on my soul, and I felt the exact same kind of energy this week as I was digging into this verse and this topic. And I was invited to do lots of repenting and rethinking about things, and so we're going to go on this journey together. But I just want you to understand the goal is how these ideas uh, uh, reveal the heart of God and how that revelation informs the mission of the church because I believe that this is either either been either neglected or it's been interpreted primarily through humanistic ideologies rather than the Bible and the move of the spirit and but it's important my friends it's so critical because I was a youth pastor for 25 years and I still uh, consider my life on earth to be here for the service of Gen Z and millennials. And I will serve everybody, but I know that I belong to them. I belong to them to spend my life, to encourage them as best I can to be faithful to Jesus and to carry on the mission of God long after I have departed, departed this position and even this world. And so when we think about praying about our community, one of the things that's on my mind is not just today's challenges, but whether or not we are creating a community that our grandchildren will want to be a part of one day. And so uh, I really believe with all my heart that this topic is one of the critical things that will speak to the health and success of the, of the church on into the future. If we do not learn what it means to do justice as those who are in Christ, then we will lose any influence or authority with which we may speak to the future generations of the church. And in fact, that's not prophetic, that's just observation, because I will tell you in many places across the landscape, we've already lost. And so one of the reasons why we want to revisit this is is the losing of the evangelical youth, is that their fault? Or is it someone else's fault? As a lifelong youth minister and pastor, I believe I bear some responsibility to the generations that are behind me. And I think that one of the things they're teaching me is I realize I neglected to emphasize how important it is to see the fruit of your faith manifested in the way you treat other people. And like you don't graduate from that one principle foundational reality. 
And I know that too many of our young people have seen, have heard good theology and reflections on the scripture, but haven't seen that translate into a people incarnating the grace of God in such a way that it radically transforms all of their relationships. And I'm saying that as one who observed it, because I did that. I was completely hypocritical in the way I treated, especially the closest relationships around me while I was preoccupied doing the work of the Lord. And so these topics are really important. We need to press in, and we, we can't allow any political ideology to take language that was given to us through the sacred scriptures and redefine it in a way that causes us to be divided amongst one another. We need to get back to the heart of what the biblical understanding of these ideas are. And so today, we're going to talk about that idea of justice. We have to return, but, but, but to me, what I want you to see is this, it's larger than that. It actually informs the understanding of the point of our faith. We must return to the biblical vision of conversion, which consists of being born again, into the world of God's kingdom, which consists in a gradual rethinking of our entire value system. This renewal of thinking results in a complete transformation of all our relationships, family, friends, neighbors, and our enemies. Because social transformation is the public fruit of private transformation. Social transformation is the public fruit of private transformation. Now, once again, I'll try not to keep doing this. I'm not talking about social institutions. I'm talking about who you are in your social realities ought to be continually being transformed and growing to be healthier as you learn how to be faithful to Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. Now, again, I'm not saying it's wrong to support social institutions and have convictions about that. That is great. Have a barbecue and talk about those and fight with your ideological enemies. If that's what your thing is, that's great. But I'm just saying that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is not the promotion or condemnation of any institution. I'm talking about how we as followers of Jesus respond to this biblical vision of justice that we see rampant all throughout the scriptures. I mean, from the beginning, all the way into the central part of the life and ministry of Jesus, all the way up to the end where we see the fruit of what we might call the dream of God. So we start here with Micah 6, 8 this morning. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So one of the ways that this verse has informed our mission and vision here at Christ Community Church is that we talk, we try to talk every week about the CCC values of compassion, community, and communion. Those three values come right out of this verse. So doing justice is our value of compassion. Loving kindness is our value of community. And walking humbly with God is our value of communion. We take our direction directly out of this verse. And this verse is so incredibly beautiful and powerful, and I wanted to go a completely different way. I wanted to look at the whole chapter this morning and juxtapose it to Isaiah 58. And let me tell you, I had a delicious time preparing it. And then I looked at it and I thought, okay, pop down, Artie. About 11.05, you're going to be hungry and you're just going to be through the introduction here. And so, so I've done some radical editing, and I'm going to try not to go off script too much this morning. But if you will go look at the context of Micah 6, and even on over into Isaiah 58, what's great about Micah, or what's great, what's interesting about Micah 6, 8, 6 is this. Right before this instruction, the reason why God is giving the prophet this instruction is before you've got the people processing how, they, how, how God might want them to respond to his rebuke because he's challenging them because of the way they're seeking to be disobedient in the way they've ordered their society and the priorities of it. And so immediately the response says, what shall we do, Lord? Shall I bring a bull? Shall I offer sacrifices? And so immediately the response of the people is, oh, okay, more religion will make God happy. 
And again, you'll see this in Micah 6, you'll see it in the life and ministry of Jesus, and you'll see it in Isaiah 58. And it's almost as if God is pulling out his whatever hair he may have as a spirit being. I don't know. He probably has no hair. That's why I'm growing more like him every day. Uh, and so, so uh, yeah, sorry, the people with the thick, beautiful heads of hair. I just love that snowy white dome of Charlie Van Eaton's. It just inspires me every week. Um, but I'll never have that. Um, what was I talking about before Charlie Van Eaton's hair distracted me? Uh, <laughs> uh, what was I talking about? What? Oh, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. And so what, what is fast? And, and I love it because it so speaks to the psyche of Artie. I've always wanted to handle the challenges of my life through more religion rather than transforming my relationships. That's way easier. And so what you see in Micah 6 is they're saying, so, so he just wants more sacrifices. God's saying, no, I've told you what is good. I've told you what I want. I want you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with me. I don't need more of your ritual and religion. And, and so, but this is what we do. This is what we, we want to, we want to solve these challenges by looking at private morality and God saying, no, that's not enough to be my community. You have to be concerned with your public witness. And in fact, one teacher has said this, biblical justice is simply what love looks like in public. So, so when we take love out of the private sector and we start thinking about our, our responsibility to love publicly, then we are doing the work of biblical justice. Now, let's dive into this a little bit here. Micah 6, 8, and what? That was the anointing. Uh, no, that was already forgetting to put his lid on his water. Man, what a morning. I'm telling you, this microphone thing, this was a mistake. Uh, it's changed the whole atmosphere of our church this morning. Okay. So what I've done here is I've put an elaborate quotation, nearly a paragraph, from one of the sources that I've been reading this week. It's Timothy Keller's book called Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just by Timothy Keller. Fantastic book. I really wish I could just turn the whole book into a sermon series. Who knows? Maybe I will. Uh, but, um, so, but I wanted to do it because... When you start reading this, it just goes explosive all over the internet, and you've got to discern, okay, is this group really trying to write an article about biblical justice, or is there some kind of political, socioeconomic agenda behind it that's really, it, it, and just giving lip service to the verse? And so there's all this written about it, all these opinions, but when I got to Kim Keller's, I thought, okay, this collates a lot of stuff that I've been reading and studying, and it says it so concisely that I really don't think I want to change too much of this. I want you to have this paragraph in your hand so that's what you have here as the sermon notes in this section. So let's take a look at this for just a moment. Micah 6.8, as we see, it's a summary. It's a summary of how God wants us to live. And here's what's interesting about that. Uh, it ends with to walk humbly with your God. But to walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and loves. And what I realize is this. It looks like these are three exhortations, but it's not. There is one exhortation in Isaiah 6, 8. And the way that we walk humbly with God is by doing justice and loving kindness. And again, when my relationships are challenging, I don't like that. I want to do a sermon called How to Walk Humbly with God and it'd be read the Bible more, pray more, attend some worship services. See, these things are easy to gauge the transformation of my life over. But what's really important is how am I treating the people at home and in the car and on the road on the way to the worship service and on the way to the Bible study and after I leave the Bible study? This, I believe, is what the Spirit is way more concerned with than how many notes I took in the meeting. Because, again, that's the way I want to go. But no, no, he says, if you want to walk humbly with me, ultimately that gets worked out in the social sphere of your relationships. 
How is the redemptive of Jesus and the Lordship of Christ having an impact on the way you are thinking about your relationships to other people, both the ones very close to you and the ones that are strangers to you? Because this has to be really, uh, th th this value has to be embodied in us if we are going to embody and express the heart of God. So, we know him intimately and we're attentive to what he desires and loves by doing justice and loving mercy or loving kindness. And you'll see, depending on your translation, some will say loving kindness, some will say loving mercy, some will say uh, loving faithfulness, and we'll talk a little bit about that phrase next week. The term for mercy or faithfulness or kindness, that's what's great. The Hebrew term's the same regardless of how the English translations translated it is the Hebrew, Hebrew word hesed. If you have any Hebrew knowledge, rest assured, I'm going to do a terrible job pronunciation uh, with, with a couple of these words. But to be fair, the Google offered multiple possibilities for translations of these words, so I don't think they knew what they were talking about either. The term for mercy is the Hebrew word hesed, and it's God's unconditional grace and compassion. The word for justice is the Hebrew term mishpat, in Micah 6.8, Mishpat puts the emphasis on the action and Hesed puts it on the attitude or motive behind the action. And both of them are absolutely necessary if we are to be expressing the heart of God and not simply the heart of our ideology or agenda. So in other words, it requires an internal transformation that bears the fruit of an external transformation. So mishpat is, is maybe we could say it this way, mishpat is the, is the public action, whereas hesed is the private attitude or motive behind the action. To walk with God, then, we must do justice out of merciful love. Basically, and its most basic meaning, this word is to treat people equitably. In other words, to be fair, to be right. And what it really has to do with in terms of that equi in, in terms of treating people equitable is this. You it is not my heart, O Israel. And again, we have to remember we're let me what time is it? Oh, 10.50. I gotta say this though. Remember. What we're trying to do, we're beginning in the Old Testament and contextually in the Old Testament, we're talking about instructions that are given to a theocracy. Not a monarch, not a democracy, but a theocracy. A nation state where God is the ruler and the government is built upon his shoulders and the laws flow out of the commands of his heart. Now, if, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the big tragedy of the Old Testament is that Israel never became the nation state God was calling her to be. And in fact, we didn't see that fulfillment until the coming of Jesus. However, as you read the Old Testament, that's the context in which these instructions are being given. So for example, when we talk about treating people with uh, equitably, what we're talking about is that Everybody gets the same legal protection and the same legal consequence regardless of their socioeconomic or ethnic situation. That's what this, that's what this idea is going after. So for example, one, one of the principles of, of Mishpat is not offering bribes. Well, that's not just only about the perversion of justice or the wrongness of offering a bribe, it's because when bribes can be offered, that means the ones with money have more power over the ones who don't because the ones with money have the resources to influence the judicial system in a way that those who are under-resourced do not have the same influence to, uh, do not have the same means to influence the judicial system. Mish Mishpat says this cannot be. Everyone has equal access, just the same. So, for example, in Leviticus chapter 24, uh, God even goes out of the way to make them remember, you are my people, you are my nation, but there will be natives, there, there will be immigrants, there will be foreigners among you, and you are to give them the same rights and dignity as you give to others. So, in, Le in Leviticus 24 says, uh, have the same mishpat or the same rule of law for the foreigner as for the native. 
So mishpat means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does wrong should be given the same penalty as someone else who does the same wrong. Now, here's the challenge in the evangelical world. That's pretty much all we think about justice. Is justice is punishment for wrongdoing. But what I want you to see is it's much more than that. Because it's not just punishing wrongdoing because it's morally wrong. It's because the evildoer is able to either prosper or expand the oppression of the vulnerable. And therefore, the justice system has to step in in order to provide protection for the vulnerable. And again, I'm talking about Old Covenant, Old Testament Israel's judicial system. I'm not making comments on modern law or, or modern governments or anything like that. But, but, so, but so, so it's much more than that because here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, we see the word used in a little bit of different way. So it's not just giving people their due, whether it's punishment or protection, but it's also for them, it was about orchestrating a society where everybody had access to what they had the right to. To be, asked, to, to, to be given or the right to experience or the, or the right to uh, enjoy. So in Deuteronomy 18, when it's talking about the sacrificial system and it talks about at one point, um, uh, Israel was supposed to put a, 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 if you go back to those laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, there was part of the offering that was supposed to be given to the Levitical priesthood why is that? Well, they, they were the tribe in Israel that didn't get an allotment of land. The Lord was their portion, and, the, and the, uh, uh, the nation was supposed to support that Levitical tribe. And so in, in Deuteronomy 18, it actually says that you give that certain percentage of the people's income goes to the temple and to the priesthood. This support is described as the priest mishpat. In other words, it's their due or their right. So in the same way, if you look at Proverbs 31, 9, in the same way that word is used in terms of giving their due or the right to the priesthood, we read, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So mishpat then is giving people what they are due, whether punishment, protection, or care. Mishpat is all we're going to look at, but I hope that you see in two weeks that Mishpat can't be understood in disconnection from Hesed. So this is why if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up whenever these words are used. Over and over again, Mishpat describes taking up the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. Now, I told you this is really big, and now we're going to start the process of bringing this down to, okay, what do all these large concepts actually mean for my own living and faithfulness to Jesus? Because again, I'm not talking about economics or social institutions. Therefore, when we talk about, and, and so, I mean, have you ever seen that phrase, fatherless, the widows, the, the, the poor, the needy, the quartet of the vulnerable, it's all throughout the writings of the prophets. And so what I don't want us to do is have a literal legalistic reading of the Bible and only think about those four categories. What is God communicating? He's saying, my people take care of the people that need help. If that's essentially what he's saying. And in that particular society, an agrarian society, if you were fatherless or a widow or uh, if you were an orphan or you were poor or you were needy, this isn't about you can't make your cable payment. This isn't about the difficult choice of letting go of Hulu and Netflix. This is about whether or not you were going to survive, whether or not you were going to continue living or if you were going to be a victim of your circumstance and cease to be living. And so what God's heart says is my community people care about that. In some ways, maybe the phrase that um, Mother Teresa used would be helpful, the poorest of the poor, for example. But what I want us to see is not, okay, 
I see where you're going with this, Artie. We need to change our political affiliation. We need to change our uh, uh, economic uh, philosophy. We need to change our understanding of welfare state. No, 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 that is not what Artie's saying. Now, we can have that conversation. I'm not saying those conversations are unimportant, unimportant, but what I want us to do is not get distracted by that so that we see the heart of God. What God is saying is, as my people, there shouldn't be anyone in need because you should be taking care of them. Now, again, this is what he's speaking to ancient Israel about the kind of covenant community that they were supposed to be. In fact, if you look at Zechariah 7, we see the quartet of the vulnerable show up again. It'll be on the overhead. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Guess what word that is? Come on, you guys are better than that. Mishpat, okay? Mishpat. Administer true mishpat. How do you do this? You show mercy and compassion to one another. You see? If we go too quickly talking about politics and economics and social institutions, we bypass the real heart of this message, which is, what are you doing? Not what is the government doing? Not what even is the church doing as an institution? But it begins with me. Am I embodying compassion and mercy and letting it transform my relationship with others. So administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So what this says, the way we administer true justice is we show mercy to one another we show compassion to one another, and we refuse and we do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the, foreigners, the foreigner, or the poor, or the disadvantaged, basically. And we do not plot evil against one another. This is what it means to live out this value of mishpat, or true biblical justice. So, to summarize everything we've said thus far, mishpat means to treat people fairly, and without partiality. It means to protect the rights of others without partiality and to resist the exploitation or the neglect of the vulnerable. This is what it means to live out the value of justice, to live out the value of mishpat. Now, as I've said before, I understand that contextually these verses are talking about the way Old Covenant Israel were supposed to organize themselves as the covenant community of God and the nation state that was ruled under King Yahweh. Of course, we know that they didn't do that, but that's the context in which these verses, because if you look at the Old Testament and the struggle, you'll see it's as if God is saying, I love you. I have showered you with blessings. Why? Do you use my blessings to become comfortable, idolatrous, and to neglect those less blessed than you? Th that is the essential storyline and failure that shows up, especially in the prophets, over and over and over again is God's covenant community interpreting the blessings of God as an, as an exclusive endorsement of them. But before I condemn Israel, I gotta say, I saw a lot of that in the churches I grew up in, and I participated actively in that same spirit as well. When all along what God is saying, no, you are blessed to extend that to those who don't yet know that blessing. And that is the call of the people of God. But as we see through the struggle of the Old Testament and even the life and ministry of Jesus, we always have a difficult time of not just hoarding and getting comfortable and then neglecting those around us. We are called to treat people fairly without partiality, to protect the rights of others without partiality, and to resist the exploitation or neglect of the vulnerable. Why? 
The reason why is because we are made in God's image, and this is God's heart. And guess what? Anytime you, we live anti the image of God, we are going to become unhealthy, spiritually, socially, theologically, and really ultimately even physically. Our goal, our desire ought to be to align ourselves with the heart of God so we can live the life we were created to live. Look at what we see about the heart of God in Isaiah 30. Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. Again, this is the struggle I've had all week. Lord, help me stay focused. Laser beam, laser beam. However, look at that verse. Most of us eventually adopt a spirituality that would have us think that maybe God is hesitant in his compassion and mercy. But do you see, God is just waiting for the opportunity to be compassionate with us. In fact, I love the language here. He is rising up to show you mercy. God is not passive with his mercy and compassion. He is proactive with it, and he calls his people to also be proactive with the pursuit of mercy and compassion. Now, look at this. We talked about God wanting to show mercy and compassion, and why is that? For the Lord is a just God. Guess what Hebrew word for just that is? Mishpat. Do you see that if you understand justice primarily as punishment, you have missed the point? Because what this scripture is celebrating is mishpat is the expression of compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy, and he calls us to do the same. The big idea this morning is the shalom of humankind is the dream of God and the mission of his community. The shalom of humankind is the dream of God and the mission of his community. I suppose what is flipping my value systems upside down is that I always pursued a private spirituality that put the emphasis on personal holiness and personal morality to nearly the complete exclusion of the consideration of the relational sins that I was committing through my action and the relate whoa there we go and the relational sins that I was committing through my neglect and you get this powerful vision of the life of faith as a person who is a redemptive force on earth. In fact, you'll be shocked of how little the Old Testament ever even brings up the afterlife. It's hardly mentioned at all. This is all about being faithful to God and then manifesting the fruit of that physically here on earth in the context of the transformational relationships that we're experiencing. This is what this is bringing us into. I don't know about you, but bringing God's redemption to the world sounds so much more interesting than bean counting my success and personal holiness. Especially because it wasn't real. All it was was religious conformity. Because if it was real holiness, it would have borne the fruit of public mercy. Private holiness, birthed by the Spirit, will always bear the fruit of public mercy. Why? Because justice is what our love looks like in public. Okay, we got to get ready to land the plane. Settle down here. Now can we begin to flesh this out? Well, I believe that we can, because I think that one of the questions that I can see some of you uh, remarkable students of the Bible are pondering right now. 
Well, we're a New Testament church. We're the new community of God. This is all the Old Testament you've been talking about. What does this have to do with the New Testament of following Jesus? Man, how astute of you. I'm so glad you asked. And for that, I deny you access to the screen and I ask you to open up that book that you brought with you or the app you've downloaded on your phone and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. So I guess you can still have the screen. It just has to be your private screen. Jay, please no updating your Facebook right now. This is Bible only. I'm going to move on, and I apologize. Um, wait, what time is it? I'm not going to move on. I'm just going to go super fast. So if you look, look in your notes, let's start here. I want us to really end on Matthew 25, but let's look quickly at three verses in Luke 14. Here's what Jesus says to a society that was built upon relationships of reciprocity for financial benefit. That means I do things for you so that you do things for me, primarily give me your business. It's about making other people's money your money, okay? That's what, that's what these relationships of reciprocity was, were all about. So it was really important that you give good banquets and you impress your friends because they're gonna have, that's, those relationships will have economic advantage in the future. It makes business sense. You know, that's why you get, you know, baskets of food for customer appreciation, that sort of thing. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I love baskets of goodies. Luke 14. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. I'm not going to make you repeat that, although I think you should. Although, let me pause here and say, I figured out what happened. I, I joined the youth team, so I've been helping on Wednesday nights doing the youth lessons, and it just is like taking the inner youth pastor out of me. And so youth pastors make you repeat things. So anyway, you would be repaid. repaid. Verse 13, on the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, Remember John Newton? Anybody remember who that guy is? Terrible person. He was an active slave trader. And the Lord converted him, turned his life upside down. He ceased being a tra slave trader. And he wrote a hymn that we all are familiar with. Anybody remember the hymn? Amazing Grace. This is what he wrote when he was comment commenting about this verse. One would almost think that Luke 14, 12 through 14 was not considered part of God's word, he wrote. Nor has any part of Jesus' teaching been more neglected by his own people. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that it is in some respects our duty to give preference to the poor, then I am at a loss to understand them. And really, the only thing I don't like about the word the poor is that, again, we are so, gosh, we are so taught to demonize one another and hate people of a different um, economic philosophy or social philosophy. But when, when we say the poor, we're not talking simply about a contemporary economic class, although it does have implications for that. But what I am saying is that Jesus gives preference to the vulnerable and the unprotected and he expects his people to do the same thing. And so, so let's end with this. Let's look at Matthew 25. We've looked at it many times in here before. I'm just going to read it real quick because this will show us what it looks like to begin to embody as individuals and then begin to ask questions. How are we as a community seeking to live out mishpat, the value of mishpat in our mission and in our ministries? Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his saints with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and his goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? Repeat after me, when? Thank you. Did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to eat or to drink? When? Please repeat after me the word when. When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When? Everybody say. Thank you. Did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now we have to close. Obviously there's a lot of stuff that you could go off on, especially if you're a preacher from that story. But the one element that I want you to see is the word when. Because it means that God's first strategy is not organizations and institutions. His first strategy isn't even for us to put on ourselves what we might call a a legalistic checklist for compassion, where we ask ourselves, okay, did I feed everyone I saw? That's how we think. That's how we want to do this. What Jesus is saying is this. When you're my disciple, compassion becomes such a part of your identity that you are not even aware that you are ministering to me and you're, when you're living out your compassion. It's just such a regular time. So I'm not talking about, let's create a new strategy of, a new ministry of mishpat. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but I'm just saying that that's not what I'm saying. This is not about philosophy. This is about embodying the life of Jesus and recognizing that what that means is compassion and mercy will start flowing from my life. And here, it's these acts of compassion, of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving a a drink to the thirsty, visiting those who are sick, and visiting those who are in prison. There's no discussion about whether or not they deserve it, whether or not your church should start a new ministry doing that. It just says, look, if you follow me, this is what it looks like. Ultimately, the fruit of your faith is seen publicly in the fruit of your transformed relationships. So, I pray that the Spirit makes you angsty this week. I pray that the Spirit comes to your heart and says, let's think about Micah 6.8 a little bit. Eh, I know, already did the best he could, but I can do even better. Follow me as I lead you to meditate on Micah 6.8 and begin to live this out in your life. I do believe that this results in actions that people will see on the streets. I really do believe that. But here's the thing, you gotta begin right here and right in your own home. What I'm saying is that compassion, mercy and justice, it's not a political conviction first, it's not even a ministry, it has to be my identity. I'm not talking about leaving your house and saving the world and never bonding with your children. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about working at the soup kitchen and never taking your partner on a date. I'm saying it's gotta begin with those other relationships and then include the rest. So your first place where you want to see mishpat manifested is in your own home. That's where we start. So would you all stand as the worship team comes forward? Number one, ask the Spirit to open your eyes and to make you aware. I feel really strongly about this this morning, and I don't want to alienate people in the audience. But in specific, I feel burdened for the men online and the men in this room. I want you to take a moment 
this week. doesn't have to be right now. I've only done this once before, and I made the men do this in church, and I got a lot of flack for it. I really want you to look into the eyes of your wife and tell me what you see. Do you see a woman fully alive and thriving in the shalom of God? Or do you see a woman who is tired and discouraged and who has been discouraged by your actions or your words? Because we can never be men who lead out injustice out in public if we don't get it right in private. So it might be that that's the only place you need to begin. Are you giving your wife her due as the man God has called you to be? to embody love and compassion right in the heart of your home. We're not doing a great job with our kids if they're just scared of us. I know it's a lot to put on our shoulders. It feels that way, but it's not. It's the heart of God. The first place a child should know the mishpat is God is in the home with loving parents who are building that atmosphere. So it begins right in the privacy of the home, maybe in the bedroom. Ask the spirit to open your eyes and make you aware. Meet the need you see in front of you. And then practice justice as you have the opportunity. But I implore you, begin with letting the spirit lead you to understand what this looks like in your home. We're going to take communion now. Communion is where we come to the Lord's table and we celebrate this new covenant that says, you are forgiven and I will always meet your every need. That's the heart of communion. We'll start from the back and the people on the outside of the back will come down here in the center aisle. I believe we start on this side and we come down and around and we just make a circle back to our seats with the elements and you can take it in privately however you see fit. Uh, that's how we're going to do that this morning. So on the light that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then he poured the wine and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Take and drink in remembrance of me.